We started off last weekend talking about these four really simple truths about why generosity is genius. I put those top of your notes page just by way of review. But honestly, for a whole bunch of people, sometimes those four truths can even be a bit like putting the cart before the horse, so to speak. For example, I know that there are people who are genuinely confounded by the whole issue of their personal financial world. How many people, for example, came to the end of 2011, they got their W-2 in the mail, maybe it showed up in your mailbox even this week, and you know the W-2 is that form that tells you how much money your employer is reporting to the government that they paid you in the last year. And how many people got that W-2 in the mail, they opened it up, they pulled it out, they looked in the box that says total income, and they saw that line, total income, and their first thought was, where did all that go? Right? Where did all that go? And we know people ask that question. But see, asking the where did it go question is a pretty good indication that someone is quite confounded by their personal finances. Now get this. If we're confounded by our personal finances, if we're asking the question, where did it all go, we're never going to be able to get to the truth that generosity is genius. If that's where we're living, we'll never make the leap to the truth that generosity is genius. See, before we ever start believing that generosity is genius, we've got to have this principle that Ingram calls the akoinomia principle. I put it on your notes page. The akoinomia principle. We've got to have this absolutely dialed into our hearts and lives. What's the akoinomia principle? It's the Greek word from which we get our word economy. Kind of sounds like that even. Which literally means household management. If we're going to get the genius of generosity, we must have household management dialed in. What's another word for household management we throw around in the church sometimes? It's this word stewardship. Stewardship. Now what what in the world does stewardship mean? Webster's defines it quite well. Stewardship is the careful, responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. Now, the dictionary definition of the word stewardship is clear. That word's also been used as a synonym for another word, another S word in the church. That word is often, any guesses? Stinginess. We sub in the word stinginess for the word stewardship sometimes, don't we? I'll never forget the time I was a youth pastor at a church and we had these vans several vans. We used them all the time. They weren't always in use necessarily though. One day, one of our sister churches across town called us up. They weren't nearly as well resourced as our church was, and they asked if they could borrow the vans. They were doing a big event. They needed the vans, and so we checked. The van calendar was clear. The vans were available. They're just sitting out in the parking lot on our church campus, rusting, doing absolutely nothing, and it was set to go. One day, the guy who was going to borrow the vans from our sister church called me up, and he said, hey, I've kind of run into a little snag. We really need to use those vans, but as I was working through the process of borrowing them, your guys who oversee your vans for you, they're telling me, we've got to pay you 50 cents a mile to use those vans. And I was stunned. I was like, when did we step into the van rental business? Right? I mean, I was the guy who fundraised a bunch of the money to buy the vans. The ministries I oversaw were the primary users, caretakers, funding stream of van upkeep and repair and so. So this was a stunning turn of events for me. So I called up our guy at our church who oversaw the vans first, and I asked respectfully, very respectfully, I was just a snot-nosed kid after all, and I said, what's up with charging 50 cents a mile for those guys to use the vans? What's up with that? They don't have 50 cents a mile. If they did, they'd go to the rental shop and they'd rent them. From those guys, they need them. We've got a cool opportunity to bless our sister church. Let's serve them, bless their ministry, enable them to do something really cool. We just got to let them use them for free. Let's let them take them. 
And I was utterly taken aback by this gentleman's response on the other end of the line. Guess what he said? Brian, it's a stewardship issue. It's a stewardship issue. He got out the big stewardship club and he whacked me over the head with it. I said, sir, with all due respect, it is not a stewardship issue. It is a stinginess issue. Like, let's just, come on. They're just sitting out there. They're going to bring them back full of gas. Like, really? Like, let it go. You'll notice that I'm not a youth pastor at that church anymore. You are stuck with me. But we often couch stinginess in the language of stewardship. And we do that to mask what's often really going on deep down in our hearts. And God's view of this oikonomia principle, God's view of household management, God's view of stewardship isn't necessarily what we make it out to be a bunch of the time, which can be stinginess in disguise. Quite to the contrary, the oikonomia principle, our household management, our stewardship, as God describes it for us in the scripture, it is a beautiful thing. It's a privileged thing. It actually comes to us from God himself, and it's rooted in this very fundamental understanding, watch this, God owns everything. Stewardship, household management, the way God understands it, the way God sees it, is rooted in this understanding, look, God owns everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything. It is all his And every single one of us, then, is just a household manager, just a steward of all of God's stuff. And if you've been around the church very long, that's old news. You know, yep, it's all God's. But a lot of people understand that, they know that, without that truth ever settling down into their hearts where it affects them, affects the way they live, the way they think, which is part of my goal in talking about this so that it does sink down to the very seat of our being where it's shaping everything we think and do and believe the way we act. It's transforming to us. Because when the truth that God is the owner of everything sinks in to the level of our soul, that then compels us to wake up every single morning and ask questions like this. How in the world am I going to leverage the time that God's given me today? How am I going to leverage it for maximum kingdom of God impact? How am I going to spend God's money today with maximum kingdom impact in mind? How am I going to steward the spouse and the children God has entrusted to my care? How am I going to steward the relationships with friends and colleagues and neighbors and roommates that God has allowed me to have for maximum kingdom impact? That kind of stewardship thinking, see, it's not encumbered with a sense of duty or obligation or rules. It's just another big heavy onus heaped on us by God. Rather, God's way of thinking about stewardship is a thrilling adventure with God day in and day out. And it is transformative. It's revolutionary to our relationship with him. You see, at the core, God is challenging us to be very wise household managers in every single area of our lives not just our finances. I got some what I call love notes this past week. Love notes is the little phrase I've given to critical, anonymous email and comment cards that come in addressed to me. Love notes, they sort of make me feel good when I call them that instead of feel bad. Well, I got some this week. And some people said some things like, you talk way too much about money. To which I say, first of all, right off the top, 
and I mean this from the core of my being, would you please put your name on those cards? Like, really? Like, put your name on those cards. And here's why. An anonymous critical comment card or an anonymous critical email sent from a phantom email address, which happens, by the way, unsigned letters sent via the U.S. Postal Service, really, they don't do any of us any good. If I'm in error, which I want you to know I can be, it's been known to happen, I am not infallible, if I'm in error and you call me out anonymously, then we can't ever have a conversation around what led you to your conclusion to write your email, your letter, your comment, or whatever it is, which frankly, we should have that conversation. If you feel the way you feel, we should have a conversation around that because we could actually learn from each other, but you have to be willing to let that process happen. Put your name on criticism. If you're convicted or convinced enough to write something that tells me I'm wrong, just stand by your conviction with integrity, and then we'll have the privilege of talking about it. And I'm a harmless fuzzball anyway. Just a nice guy. Not scary. Come on. Let's have a conversation. The second thing I'd say that's missing from the comments I got this week in particular is the understanding that the genius of generosity extends way beyond money. Way, way, way beyond money. It is so much more than money. And I think what gets really confused in this kind of a conversation is that people assume that whenever I stand up here and preach about God's way of handling money, it's because Journey just wants more of it. But this isn't about Journey wanting more of your money. This is not about what I want from you. This is about what God wants for us in every single area of our lives, including all the way down to our finances. This is about every single one of us living lives that are fully connected to God's way of life and living in everything. This is about our spiritual maturity. This is about spiritual development. This is about us living lives that are fully submitted to God in everything. Frankly, it's a holiness issue. It's a holiness issue. Our lives before a perfect, holy, almighty God. And it's about us seeing our stuff the same way God sees our stuff. Our stewardship and wise household management extends or should extend to every single area of our lives. Our time. The scriptures tells us, scripture tells us that our time is not our time, it's God's, and every minute is a gift. And Psalm 90.12 talks about teaching us to realize the brevity of life so that we grow in wisdom. God, what do you want to do with the time you've given me today? I have 24 hours in this day. I'm going to sleep some of them. But the rest of them, how do you want to squeeze them for maximum kingdom impact? Our spouse is a gift from God. Our spouses are gifts from God. God, how do you want us to steward our spouses? We're not just existing in this marital relationship that we have. How do you want us to steward this relationship for maximum kingdom of God impact? Our property, everything we have, Luke 16, 12. If you're not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? It's all God's, every single thing we have. God, how do you want me to leverage all I got for maximum kingdom impact? Our spiritual gifts. When you step across the line of faith in Jesus Christ, he imbues you with a remarkable set of talents, gifts, abilities, and so on. What are you doing with them? Are you just sort of holding on to them right here? Or are you maximizing them, releasing them fully for kingdom of God impact? 
How about this one? This is so huge. We are stewards, managers of God's truth. Watch this. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. This is Paul writing. So look at Apollos and me, that's Paul, as mere servants of Christ. That's all of us, isn't it? Who have been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. Every single one of us as a follower of Jesus Christ has been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. How are we doing with that? Are we just keeping it to ourselves? I ain't telling anybody because I'm too shy, too embarrassed, too scared, too whatever. Are you stewarding that? And you're thinking in every conversation that you're having with every person that you're engaged with in relationship, how could I steward the truth of God in this conversation? How do I plant seeds? How do I invite people to a relationship with Jesus Christ? How do I leverage God's truth in this relationship for the sake of this other person's eternity? They're forever. And then our bodies. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 tells us our very bodies are gifts to us from God. And lots of times we don't do a very good job of stewarding and household managing this temple of the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes we don't feed it well, we don't give it enough rest, we don't drink enough water. And then we wonder why it breaks down and falls apart sooner than it should. God says, steward even your body for maximum kingdom of God impact. Every single thing we've been given is a gift from God. We're stewards and managers. Why did he do that? Why did God set up his economy to work that way? Why did he give us all this stuff and say, manage it well, steward it well? It's so that we can partner with him to accomplish his purposes. So that we can partner with God. That is a stunning reality. We're humanity, he's God, and he says, look, I want to partner with you in accomplishing my purposes on earth. The kingdom of God comes through you and me and us. And you think I talk about money a lot. You should hear everything Jesus has to say on the subject. Really. And Jesus wasn't just talking about money all the time because God needed it, and Jesus was the messenger to make sure God got it all. Jesus talked about money so frequently because what we do with our money is one of the most clear, accurate reflections of our relationship with him possible. It is a barometer of our spiritual temperature, our relationship with God. And one day Jesus told a story to help us get a slice of God's perspective on how he challenges us to steward and manage everything in our lives. Our money, our stuff, our everything. It's in Luke 16, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Luke 16, starting in verse 1. Here's what the Bible says. Jesus told this story to his disciples. There was a certain rich man who had a manager, a steward, a household manager, handling his affairs. One day a report came that the manager was wasting his employer's money. So the employer called him in and said, what's this I hear about you? Get your report in order because you're going to be fired. The manager thought to himself, now what? My boss has fired me. I don't have the strength to dig ditches. I'm too proud to beg. Ah, I know how to ensure I'll have plenty of friends who will give me a home when I am fired. This is brilliant. 
on this household manager's part. The shrewd manager, that's what the section, this section of scripture is titled in my Bible. The shrewd manager realizes, look, I got a little time, I got a little bit of opportunity, and he's going, I got to leverage my time, I got to leverage my opportunity to secure something off in the future. I got to have somewhere to go, I got to have somewhere to live, so how do I use this little time, this little opportunity, and leverage it for a secure future? So look, the Bible goes on. So he invited each person who owed money to his employer to come and discuss the situation. He asked the first one, how much do you owe him? The man replied, I owe him 800 gallons of olive oil. So the manager told him, take the bill, quickly change it to 400 gallons. And the guy whose debt just got reduced by 50% is going, dude, thank you so much for that. If you ever need anything, you just holler at me and the shrewd manager sitting back going like, oh, I will. And it's going to be way sooner than you think. And he keeps going. He goes to the next guy. How much money do you owe my employer? He asked the next man. I owe him 1,000 bushels of wheat was the reply. Here, the manager said, take the bill, change it to 800 bushels. And this guy's going, shrewd manager, if you ever need a hookup, you just call. Shrewd manager's going, I'm gonna. Now look at the next verse. The rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal, the scripture calls him, for being so shrewd. Well, that is powerful. The rich guy, he finds out what's happened. He calls his shrewd, formerly shrewd manager in. At the same time, he's unbelievably ticked off at this guy for what he just did. He's patting him on the back going, you are one shrewd guy. I'm really mad at you, but look at what you did. You realized you've got a little bit of time. You've got a little bit of opportunity. You didn't want to beg. You didn't want to dig ditches. And you took advantage of your little time and opportunity to make sure that you have a place to go in the future. Shrewd. The rich guy commends the shrewd manager. And then the Bible goes on. Jesus explains. And it's true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of the light. And unfortunately, that is all too often the case, isn't it? And here's the lesson. Jesus doesn't do this all the time in his parables. He does it here. Here's the lesson. He just paints it. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when your earthly possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. Jesus is saying brilliant living equals leveraging the little bit of time, the little bit of opportunity you have, and using it to bring the kingdom of God right here, right now, wherever you are, for the sake of other people's eternities. That's what it's about. And then Jesus lays out the dynamic that's behind this principle. If you're faithful in the little things, you will be faithful in large ones. If you're dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. If you're untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? If you're not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Get this, God is the wisest investment banker ever. 
He does not give us the greater riches to start off with. He gives us these little tests along the way with worldly wealth, with this thing called money. And he says, okay, I'm going to test to see where your heart is. Are you all in with me? Or are you just about worshiping yourself through your stuff? And Jesus makes it abundantly clear. He's testing our devotion to him by watching what we do with this little mundane thing called money. And scripture teaches again and again and again that passing Jesus' generosity test involves two very simple principles. The first one is first fruit giving. First fruit giving. We don't hear that phrase a lot, but here's where it comes from. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 9. The Bible says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. You see, when our priorities are right, then our generosity to the Lord and to his church and to his work comes first, right off the top of our income. Our giving then to the Lord is the best we have. It isn't the dregs. It's not the leftovers. It is our best time. It is our best talent. It is our best treasure. True devotion to God looks like us giving him our very best. I've spent just a little bit of time on other continents and settings that we would call missions type settings. And if you went there, some of you have, you would be absolutely amazed that some of the stuff that people send to the missionaries and to the people over there. I've walked through piles and piles and piles of stuff that well-meaning Christians sent on to other countries that nobody, and I mean nobody here, would think of using for themselves. Clothes with gaping holes in them, shoes literally with the soles worn all the way through, boxes and boxes and boxes of used underwear. They don't want them. They don't want them. And people clean out their garage over here and they send it over there with this mindset, well, it's better than the nothing that they got now, right? But that isn't generosity from God's perspective. People sending, quote, gifts like that, they didn't want the stuff. They appreciated that someone was willing to take their junk off their hands in a way that made them feel good. True generosity is about giving from our hearts with high priority gifts of high quality, not the leftovers, not the dregs. Passing the generosity test means we give our first, our best, not leftovers. The second principle that enables us to pass Jesus' generosity test is regular and systematic giving. You heard Joe talk about this on the video. If we just sit around and wait for the giving mood to sort of strike us, we'd never get to the place of true generosity, would we? Generosity means we have established a pattern to our giving. The Apostle Paul, he was writing to the church in the city of Corinth about a collection he was taking up for the Christ followers in the city of Jerusalem. They were going through very challenging financial times in Jerusalem. And so Paul invites the Corinthian church to do everything that the church in Galatia had done, which was this, 1 Corinthians 16.2. On the first day of the week, you should each put aside a portion of money that you have earned. And there's all kinds of truth loaded up in that. Generosity isn't just an occasional attitude. It isn't just a feel-good response to some sort of pressing need that somebody has. Generosity is a regular, ongoing practice that becomes a spiritual discipline in our lives. A discipline that we develop over time. 
And that discipline that we develop over time actually steers our hearts, actually guards our hearts. Now sure, Paul was telling the Corinthians to give on the first day of the week, on Sunday, the day that they gathered. But he wasn't mandating this like every week giving. Wages in that day, they were paid weekly, sometimes even paid daily. So naturally, Paul was just saying, give in the flow that you're receiving. Give according to when you get paid. We can and should employ that same principle today. Given the same rhythm that you get paid. If that's once a month, it's once a month. If it's twice a month, it's twice a month. If it's when you get a commission check, it's when you get a commission check. It's not about fulfilling a legalistic schedule. It's about giving the first and the best in a regular, ongoing, systematic way. Now, talking like we're talking always raises the question for people who are new in faith, especially we have a few people new in faith around journey. The question is, how much should I give? How much should I give? The Bible answers the question. This isn't Brian's answer. This is the Bible's answer from God, Leviticus 27, verse 30. One-tenth of the produce of the land, whether grain from the fields or fruit from the trees, belongs, get this, belongs to the Lord and must be set apart to him as holy. 10% is what we should give. It's called the tithe. Now get this, the tithe is just the floor of our generosity. The goal is generosity that doesn't keep track of percentages. The goal is cheerful, generous, abundant giving. But the scripture said it starts at this floor of 10% for the church and God's work here on the planet. It's the floor, the starting place, the tithe. Now, I want to show you what God says about the tithe. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Here's what the Bible says about the tithing gig. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, which is the church, incidentally, so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. God says, I'm so sure of how this generosity thing all works that I'm actually challenging you to test me. And God doesn't say that very often, does he? God is not frequently running around saying, test me, test me, test me. Uh-uh. He does here with the generosity thing. Test me in this. And then he goes on and he says, when you test me, I'm going to pour out a blessing so great you will not have enough room to take it in. That's how good God is. That's how good God is. And maybe some of you are sitting here today and you're going, okay, I get it. My stewardship and my household management of God's resources needs to amp up and I'm getting it. I want to honor him. I want to leverage the little time, the little opportunities given me for this eternal reward for the souls, eternal souls, eternal destiny of people. And maybe you're sitting here and you feel compelled to start tithing to his church and to his work. We have a mechanism by which you can do that. It's called the three-month tithe challenge. There's a sheet attached to your notes page. You can flip over there right now if you want to. And it's got the detail on this. We've done one of these before, over a year ago or so. And the three-month tithe challenge, very simply, is you saying, I'm in. For the next three months, I'm going to put God to the test, just like he invites me to do, Malachi 3, and I'm going to tithe for the next three months. At the end of the three months' time, which if you start today will be the weekend, interesting timing, by the way, it'll be the weekend of April 14th and 15th, right? 
interesting day on our calendar, tax day. And if you get out to that weekend in April and you're saying, you know, that didn't work out. I don't believe in it. I haven't seen God's blessings. It just didn't work for me. You make a call to our offices over here. We'll stroke a refund check for every penny you've given from this weekend until then. No questions asked. A money-back guarantee of sorts. Test me in this, God says. So we're gonna. And just so we're clear, the three-month tithe challenge things is for people who have not previously been tithing. If you've been in tithing already, you've already seen God's blessings, I'm sure. If you've been giving sporadically a little here, a little there, this is for you. If you've been giving nothing, then this is for you. This is for those who have not previously been giving the tithe. And there's a bunch of specifics on that sheet. If you're going to take God up on his challenge, you sign the bottom of that sheet, tear it off, pass it to an usher on your way out of here, someone in the lobby with a lanyard, someone in... Guess Central or so. Now, in closing, I want to go back to the story that Jesus told about the shrewd manager because it kind of leaves us a bit hanging. And you've got to see what's at the heart of Jesus' teaching and what's at the very heart of the genius of generosity is that God desires more than anything for us to leverage our money and our stuff into tools that can be used to introduce people into relationship with God. That's what this is all about at the end of the day. God wants to take our money and our stuff and use it in such a way that instead of asking the where did all go question, instead of asking that question, God wants to use it in such a way that someday when we're in heaven, people actually walk up to you, introduce themselves to you, and say, I'm here because of how you leveraged your money. I'm here because of how you leveraged all of your stuff. And God took what you held up to him, what you gave to him, what you availed to him, what you managed well for him, and he used that, and I'm here in heaven because of that activity on your part. And Jesus teaches that again and again and again all throughout the scriptures. Use the worldly wealth, this mundane thing called money that God's given you, and steward it and manage it well and leverage it leverage it. Take the little bit of time, the little bit of opportunity, and use it in such a way that the Father can bring people into his kingdom. Make your temporary stuff have eternal payback, eternal consequences. Squeeze every single thing you have, the time, the money, the spiritual gifts, the relationships, for maximum kingdom of God impact. That is the genius of generosity. Maximum kingdom of God impact. I invite you to take your stuff and set it aside if you would and just get still and quiet with the Lord. Just press in with him.
And just while you're in a posture of prayer and listening to the Lord in this time, I put a little homework assignment on your notes page, and you don't need to look at it now. You can take it with you. It's there, printed, black and white for you to work on later. And it's just really three quite simple questions. Maybe you'd use them on your 20-mile marches with Jesus every day in your quiet time, your Bible reading time, your prayer time, your listening time to Him. Maybe you'd just insert these three questions into your time with God tomorrow even. First one's this. Am I using the treasure that's been entrusted to me according to the owner's, capital O, owner's wishes? According to God's wishes. Is it fulfilling maximum kingdom of God impact like he desires? Second question, am I carefully keeping an account of where the owner's treasure is going? How's my budget? How's my personal financial world? Am I asking the where did it all go question or do I know? Just press in with the Lord around that. Maybe there's there's some activity that he would have you embark upon. And then the third question, and this is really, this is the biggie. Am I becoming best friends with the owner, with God, by managing his treasure well? Is his heart enlarging my heart? Are his priorities becoming my priorities? Is the kingdom of God bigger because of what God's doing in me around generosity and so. I just encourage you to press in with the Lord on those. And Jesus, we come to you today in incredible gratitude, just simply for who you are. You are God and we're not. You are almighty and we're frankly pretty feeble. You're the King of kings, you're the Lord of lords, and we are your humble creations. And we bow before you, and we just proclaim you're God. And you are supreme and all-powerful and all-knowing, and you've existed since before the beginning of time. And we worship you for all the things that you are. And then we say, God, thank you for wanting to partner with us in the bringing of your kingdom. I pray for all of us that we would be impassioned household managers, impassioned stewards of your stuff that you've entrusted to our care that maximum kingdom impact would be our heart's cry with everything, not just our money, but every single thing in our lives. Because it is about you. It's about the eternal destiny of souls, people who we love and care about, people who you've asked us to steward Help us do that well, God.